Acts 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him, and had seen that he had, been, that he had faith to be made well, he said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet! And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet He did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. What an interesting story, Father. Interesting, Lord, because it happened. But fascinating because you would choose to include this in the Scriptures. Interesting, Father, because your spirit directed Luke to share this story, this event, this occurrence. Father, thank you. Thank you for never skirting the truth. Thank you for never shying away from difficult or challenging situations or topics. Thank you for bringing us your word. And I pray, Father, you would apply Your word with revelation, the revelation of your spirit to us all here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the headline read on October 15th, so just this last week, in the Daily Express in the UK. Scientists claim they can change your belief on immigrants and God with magnets. There was a bizarre experimental study done in the Social Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Journal, light reading for you who like to do so at breakfast, and this experiment claims to be able to use magnets to cause people to be more open to migrants and less open to God. It's a process called transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. Researchers say they were able to safely shut down certain groups of neurons in the brains of British volunteers. Man, it's like a Doctor Who episode. They can shut down these neurons, and they say the technique altered both religious perceptions and personal prejudice. Belief in God after these magnets were applied went down by 32.8%. Subjects became 28.5% less bothered by immigration numbers. Now, the devil is in the details. Listen, this study was flawed before it even began. And it was flawed because... Well, let me ask you, would you take part in it? Would you be part of a study that you knew had the potential of decreasing your belief in God? Well, right there is a variable that probably should be considered... That is the kind of person who would say, yeah, I'll sign up to lose faith. But there's a more important question. When I read this article, why would they even do something like this? What's the ultimate goal? And the scientists themselves tell us in their own words. History teaches that investment in cherished group and religious values can bring forth acts of both heroic valor and horrific injustice. 
This may ultimately help us to identify the situational triggers of and individuals most susceptible to this phenomenon and thereby, listen, thereby gain some leverage over the zealous acts that follow. Two words. Mind control. If we can get some leverage over people's faith, maybe this guy believes just too much. Maybe this lady is just a little too passionate. We can dial them down a bit. This is what happens in a world of gods and men. A world in which men start to think they're gods. Now the study has several major flaws. I won't go into this morning. It's not our purpose here. But in my opinion, the greatest flaw of the study is this. They fail to distinguish between mind and heart. Between soul and spirit. See, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. There's flesh and there's spirit. And in the middle of all that is the battleground of the mind, the soul. What are you going to set your mind on? Are you going to set your mind on the flesh? Or are you going to set your mind on the Spirit? We all, like our Father who created us, our triune in nature, body, mind, and spirit. And all this study takes into account, indeed, all really the world takes into account, is mind and flesh. Body and soul. Leaving spirit out. But Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by The Spirit. We're going to talk about what that means this morning. We're going to join Barnabas and Paul. They are in a world, well, a lot like ours. A world of gods and men. It's their first missionary journey. First time out. They're now turning to the Gentiles. We saw, saw this, studied this on Wednesday night. Fascinating. The turning point of ministry back in chapter 13 where Paul says to the Jews listening who have rejected the message in verse 46 of chapter 13, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so they did and so they would. But in so doing, they begin to confront brand new challenges that they had not faced yet. A a completely different set of values. A a different worldview. Jewish antagonism is going to continue to chase them down. Continue to bite at their heels. But pagan belief now represents... For any Christian missionaries, a whole new ball game in the ministry of the gospel. They're not dealing with Jewish people who already have a subset of faith. Who already believe in the same God from whom Jesus came. No, now we're dealing with the people who have an entire pantheon of gods. It's a very different situation. Think of it this way. No Jew in his right mind would worship a man. However, the Greeks had the opposite problem. They worshipped everything. Anything. And here in Lystra, at the first sign of something miraculous, the people, we'll call them Listerines, they, they gather and, and, and begin an ad hoc worship service the moment something miraculous takes place. See, in Israel, when something miraculous took place, when Jesus performed a miracle, the people praised God. Or they were frightened depending on where their faith was in the Lord. They were threatened, as in the Pharisees. But now, oh, these pagans, they see a miracle and they say, They're gods! A miracle! Worship them! They've got the priest of Zeus coming in, bringing in oxen and garlands. Man, let's sacrifice and let's worship. Barnabas and Paul must be Zeus and Hermes. They must be gods. Now, Two things take place in the story before us. We'll look at them both in in two parts this morning. The first one is a lameness healed. A lameness healed. As a man who is lame from birth is healed by faith in the gospel. By faith in Jesus. The second part of the story is where it really gets curious. And that's a lameness revealed. Where we will look at this people lame for generations and who remain crippled by their own foolish fables. So part one, a lameness healed, looking back at verse 8. At Lystra, 
a man who was sitting had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Lystra is Turkey today, probably kind of central, a little bit south of the center of Turkey, if you're looking at a map. And there in Lister we have this crippled man, this, this lame man. He's never walked a day in his life. He was born without strength in his legs. Never walked. Remember, Peter healed such a man. A man lame from his mother's womb back in Acts chapter 3. I find it interesting, and we talked about this a bit when we opened up the book of Acts for the first time, that for every miracle of Peter, there's a, a, a counterpart miracle of Paul. For the teachings of Peter, we see the teachings of Paul. There's a back and forth in the book of Acts as if Luke is saying, we all know that Peter was approved by the Lord. Let me show you how Paul also was approved by the Lord. See, Paul doesn't have a Bachelor of Arts in Bible. He has the book of Acts as his credentials. And what's wonderful about that is when we finally finish the book of Acts and we come into the letters of Paul, we now can understand this man is writing inspired by the Spirit of God. This man writes with the authority of Jesus Christ. And we don't have to wonder as we go through Paul's writings, well, should we agree? Should we disagree? Is he misogynistic? What's the problem with this guy? No, Paul is not the issue in the letters of Paul. Jesus is. And we'll talk about that. But there in Lystra, we have this lame man. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, verse 9. Who, when he had fixed his gaze on him, and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand up on your feet! And he leaped up and began to walk. A lameness healed. Paul is preaching Jesus. There at the gate, probably at the gate of the city, or in the town square, and he notices as he preaches this lame beggar. But the beggar's not just sitting there with his hand up. This beggar is listening intently. And here's what I want you to see in this healing. All at once, all together, several spiritual gifts come into play. Spiritual gifts? Oh yeah. Keep your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, so we go Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Follow along with me as I read. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. It's one of four, maybe five times Paul even makes that kind of statement. Don't want you to be unaware of this. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to know what that means, real quickly, it just means no one can give their heart to Jesus except by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, Paul's not saying that you can't speak the words, Jesus is Lord. People do speak those words without intent, without any kind of meaning behind them. Not speaking by the Spirit. But to say Jesus is Lord, to claim, to receive, to accept Jesus as Lord, there's only one way that happens, and that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. God at work in you. And so Paul goes on. Now, there are varieties of gifts. But the same Spirit... And there are varieties of ministries, the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation, that is the visual experience or representation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith, by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing, by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the distinguishing of spirits or discernment. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. 
In other words, God works in and through His church as He wills. And we see it in Paul. In fact, there's a great example here. Because there's nothing special about Paul. Remember, Paulos means small one. Paul has finally come to understand that his only strength is in his weakness. That in relying on the Spirit of God, that's that's where he's able to do anything of value, anything of, of meaning. So there's nothing about Paulos that's so impressive here at Lystra. But the Spirit is game on. And we see in Paul at least, and you might find more, but at least four spiritual gifts. In the list we just read, at least four gifts working together in Paul simultaneously. I call it synchronized gifting. Watch this. We see the gift of teaching. Now that's the obvious one. Paul is preaching the word. He's teaching the word. Down in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, it describes this. In fact, let me read this to you. I'm going to read this a couple of times just so we get it. But 1 Corinthians 12... Oh, I already lost my place. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, which says... God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, and then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Okay, So these are our positional gifts, if you will. And we're going to get into this. We'll study these things in depth when we get to 1 Corinthians. These are what I would call positional gifts, or gifts that have a role attached to them, as opposed to the gifts that are listed in verses 4 through 11, which are individual gifts that are just given as the Spirit wills. Okay, We see the gift of teaching here at work. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 also describes positional gifts. Apostles and, and, and evangelists and teachers and pastors. And, and I don't have the whole list memorized, but that's the idea, Ephesians 4.11. But what's interesting to me is there's often a synergy of spiritual gifts. That oftentimes when the Holy Spirit gives a spiritual gifting to someone, it, it's... It's alongside, it coincides with another gift, two, maybe three gifts. There are times up here on a Sunday, on a Wednesday night, that the gift of teaching, preaching, word of wisdom, word of knowledge and prophecy, all are interacting at the same time. Well, that's a little heady, Rick. Please understand, these are gifts. These are not generated internally. These have nothing to do with the individual but everything to do with the Spirit of God. These are not to elevate the man, they glorify the Lord Jesus. That's what the gifts are for, why the gifts are given. And so Paul here has the gift of teaching, but along with it, he has the word of knowledge. Word of knowledge. It's listed in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 12. What is the word of knowledge? Listen, it's very simply something that you cannot possibly know on your own. Suddenly you know something, you recognize something, something is revealed to you, you could not possibly have known otherwise, except that the Spirit Spirit tells you, this is what's going on, this is what's happening. Paul looks at the lame man and realizes there's faith in this man's heart. Based on the story, the man hasn't said a word. He's just lying there lame. He's listening to Paul intently. Faith emerges in his heart... And Paul knows, word of knowledge. The Lord drops into Paul's heart what is happening in this man's heart. Teaching, knowledge. Gift of teaching, word of knowledge, working together. Gang, there are times when I'm teaching that I know things I shouldn't know. Things beyond notes, beyond study. And I'm not talking about feelings, and I'm not talking about Rick's opinions, which I know I can give as well. I'm talking about things I am not smart enough to know on my own. Thank you for not saying amen. It's like Jesus said, and I so relate to this, I really do. When they were up at Caesarea Philippi, and Peter blurts out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God! And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, you just proclaimed me as Lord, Jesus says to Peter, because God told you, not because you figured it out. And like Peter, 
There are so many times where I am not smart enough to figure something out. But a word of knowledge comes. And it is the gift of knowing some truth with certainty by the Spirit of God. Cool, huh? Hey, you want to be trained for the word of knowledge? That's something we need to realize. The Holy Spirit gives the spiritual gifts, but we can train for them. We can prepare ourselves for them. What are you talking about, Rick? If you want to be trained for the word of knowledge, be trained in the knowledge of the word. Because the more you spend time in the Word of God, training in the Word of God, studying the Word of God, understanding the Word of God, the easier it is for the Spirit to say, Word of knowledge. He will call out of the Word things for you to see, to realize, to understand. He'll often do it when you're in conversation with someone and there's something they need to hear and you don't have it, but suddenly the Spirit speaks it through you, gives it to you, a Word of knowledge. So many are trained in the knowledge of the world rather than the knowledge of the Word. Let me just tell you, no matter how high the degree may be, if you are trained in the knowledge of the world rather than the knowledge of the world, you are not getting the whole truth. You're only getting partial truth. Mixed probably with a lot of lies. Peter put it this way, 2 Peter 3.17. He said, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Why do we send our students off to colleges to listen to unprincipled men? Why do we send our students to listen to people who don't even share the same faith we share? Now this is very different in our country than it used to be a while ago. When faith in God was expected of a public school teacher. When if the public school teacher was not at church on Sunday morning, people began to talk around town, what's going on? Not anymore. And if you're being trained by unprincipled men, at a minimum I would say, to our children, to our students, our young people as we send them off to college, you have your radar up. And if you know a professor is a non-believer, accept what they teach you as such. This is the teaching of a non-believer, which means partial truth. Well, Rick, I find that offensive. I'm sorry. But it's absolutely true. That if someone is not functioning with the truth of God, they are only functioning with partial truth. I didn't have the whole truth. Until I came to Jesus who is the truth. And so Peter says, be on your guard. Don't be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your steadfastness. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I like how Solomon put it very succinctly. Proverbs 14.7, he says, Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. You want to discern the word of knowledge? You want to be available for the Lord to give you the gift of the word of knowledge? Then develop knowledge in the word. Be in the word of God. Stay in the word of God. So here's Paul teaching. He gets a word of knowledge. He realizes. He knows. That this man sitting there is believing. What's the man believing? This Jesus can heal me. This Jesus can heal me. He's listening to Paul preach Jesus. And the lame man in his heart, and again this is not written down, it's not spoken out loud, but in his heart the lame man's going, this is the answer. This Jesus, he's the one who can heal. And Paul knows it. Suddenly, we see a third gift come into play, the gift of faith. The gift of faith. 1 Corinthians 12.9 mentions the gift of faith. But I'm not talking about the lame man's faith. Oh, there's faith there. It's suddenly emerged in his heart. But the gift of faith, which is a different thing, is operating in Paul. Gift of teaching, word of knowledge, gift of faith. How do you know the gift of faith is operating in Paul? Would you look at verse 10 back in Acts chapter 14? (laughs) 
Paul says with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Now, would you have done that? Would you have said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet? I got to be honest, I think I would have hem-hawed around a bit. Even if I knew, word of knowledge, that in the midst of my teaching, that, that this man was starting to believe, unless there's the gift of faith, why would you jump out like Paul just did? Stand up on your feet! I think it would have been more like... <clears throat> um, do you want to walk or something? <laughs> You want to try this? I don't know, but let's give this a shot. Yeah, maybe something could happen here. That's not gift of faith. The gift of faith is Paul knows. Man, he's like a stadium announcer at a U2 concert. Get up on your feet! Seattle! Woohoo! And the man gets up on his feet. The gift of faith is God-generated. The gift of faith that, that emerges in, in Paul is the absolute belief that this man's about to be healed. And I'm going to speak a word and he's going to stand up. And that's just the way it is. That is the gift of faith. Think about the man. Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John. They come down the mountain after Jesus was transfigured. And after this marvelous spiritual experience, as they come to the, to the base of the mountain... There's this uproar, there's this fear with the rest of the apostles and they're all having an argument. There's a man there and he's got this demon-possessed son. And there's obviously a mess and crowds are all gathered around and everybody's shouting and giving their opinions. And, and the man comes to Jesus and said, I tried to, your disciples couldn't cast the demon out of my son. And Jesus says, come out of him. And the demon comes out of him. And, and then the disciples later, they come to Jesus alone and they go, why couldn't we drive the demon out? We did all the right things. And Jesus said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. You see, it's not the faith in the demon-possessed boy. It wasn't the faith in the father, though he would say, I believe, help my unbelief. It was the faith in the apostles that was lacking. The apostles who had walked with Jesus, knew Jesus, knew who He was, but their faith was so little. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. Now, we recently defined mustard seed faith as the faith to simply pray. Little faith. But I'll tell you what, it takes more faith to pray over a situation than it does not to pray at all. And you may be among those who from time to time you're praying for someone, you're like, I, I, don't, I don't think this is going to do any good, but, but Lord, I'm going to come to you anyway. Lord, I'm going to pray to you anyway. And oftentimes, and we see this biblically, prayers offered by people, even without a whole lot of faith, man, the prayer was offered, and God loves to respond to prayer. Mustard seed faith is little little faith and, and just a little bit bigger sized mustard seed could move mountains if we would believe. But listen, there's faith and there's the gift of faith. And they are two different things. You see, the gift of faith is a given ability to believe beyond anything you can mustard. <laughs> It's not mustard seed faith. It's master seeded faith. It's a faith that drops into your heart by the Lord. A faith to know absolutely something's going to take place. It's a faith God says, give the believer, and suddenly it takes instant root. It's not a blind leap. It's not a risky venture. It's not a precarious prayer. And it's not a testing of the waters. Well, I'm going to take hold of this guy and just see if he stands up. No. Get up on your feet. Stand up. And he leapt up and walked. We're talking about the unquestionable assurance God is at work. God is doing something, the gift of faith. Now, I've, I've shared this before. I often, over the years, I've, I've had conversations with people who have said, you guys who started the bridge, man, you must have really mustered up some great faith to do something risky. 
And my response is always the same. No, he didn't. It was easy. As a matter of fact, I can tell you that starting this church was probably the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. Why? I mean, Rick, you went from a salary job to, are you going to get paid or not? Who knows? You went from a group of people already meeting to starting with, with who knows if anyone's going to show up. You're in a living room. How, how does all that work? Blessed are you, Rick, son of Bob, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And when the gift of faith comes, and I'm absolutely convinced that this church started because God dropped the gift of faith into a handful of hearts. And we all looked at each other and said, of course this is what we're supposed to do. No question. No question whatsoever. Right, Mark? Susan? Absolutely. The gift of faith, right? Tom? Jackie? Gift of faith. And if I'm, I know I'm missing others who are here who are there. God just drops it in our hearts. And off we go. The gift of faith is just that. And note this, in 1 Corinthians 12, these are all spiritual gifts. Gifts are a thing given, not a thing generated. Not a thing that I have practiced out. Not a thing that I have worked out. However, however, if you'd like the gift of faith, then I encourage you, practice faith. In the same way that if you would like to receive a word of knowledge, man, Increase knowledge in the Word. If you'd like to receive the gift of faith, practice faith. You see, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 and Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So practice faith. Exercise faith. Rehearse faith. Let me ask you this question, it's been asked to me this week. What is going on in your life that you need faith for? Here was the way the question was asked of me this week. Since we moved into the building, and it's one year ago tomorrow that we've been in this building, Since we've been in this building, what have we had to have faith for? Not much. We have our building. We have our land. We've got our footprint. The county's going to have a whole lot harder harder time kicking us out of here than they would have had kicking us out of the barn. What do we have to have faith for? What do you in your personal life have to have faith for? And if you're going, well, I don't know. Everything's good. It's all good. Maybe it's time to start praying Like the father of the demon-possessed boy, Lord, increase my faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. So gift of teaching, word of knowledge, gift of faith. So there's three gifts right there. And then the fourth one obviously powerfully comes into play, the gift of healing. 1 Corinthians 12.9 Another spiritual gift, as important, I would not say more important, I would say as important as gift of teaching, word of knowledge, gift of faith. But the gift of healing is now the supernatural, unexplainable, intervening work of God, not the work of Paul. Not the work of Barnabas. Not the work of Peter or John or the apostles. The gift of healing is never the work of the one who is doing it. He's just a vessel. It's a work of the Lord. A work of God. And and here's where we lose some people today in the church. People who say, Christians who say, do you really believe in miracles of healing today? I mean, I know, we all pray for someone and then they get better. Woohoo, miracle. And in all cases, it probably is. I'm talking about someone who's blind and you pray for them and they see. Someone who's deaf and you pray over them, lay hands on them and suddenly they can hear. Someone who's lame. And you look at them, and the word of knowledge drops into your heart, and the gift of faith drops into your heart, and you look at them and say, stand up on your feet, and up they leap. You really think that kind of stuff is for the church today? Now you're all saying yes, or some of you are. Maybe some of you in your hearts are going, ah, I don't know. It's not that I don't believe in God. It's not that I don't take Him at His word. It's just, now we're getting into the wonky. 
My friends, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. In whom did God appoint these things? In the church. Paul says very clearly, and by the way, Paul is not writing an epistle to the apostles. He's writing to Corinth, a one-time pagan group of people who are now believers in Jesus. And he says, God's appointed these things in the church. This is, this is for the church. And by the way, when did Paul, time frame wise, when did he write this? In the church age. And so I asked the same question I've been asking since we started into this book. Are we not still in the church age? Are we not the church? Then are these things for the church? And how come we don't see it more often? Maybe we need to spend a little more time praying for faith. Maybe we need to be spending more time in the knowledge of the Word. Maybe we need to be a people who are practicing for the spiritual gifts so that we are heart ready when the Lord says, now I'm going to use you. Now I want you to do this. Now I want you to be prepared. See, Paul was walking in the Spirit. Do you realize that's why this whole thing took place? That's why they were in Lystra in the first place. Paul is just walking in the Spirit. And this man finds himself walking on his feet. Because Paul was walking in the Spirit. And think about it this way. Before Paul met Jesus, he had never done anything like this. Saul wasn't walking around healing people. Saul wasn't watching people leap to their feet. He had never done this. Some of you think, well, I've never healed anybody. Neither had Saul. And all of a sudden, as he's walking in the Spirit... As he's gifted by the Spirit, these things are beginning to happen. And I do believe that we can practice for and prepare for the Lord to use us and to pour out His spiritual giftings as He wills. So practice. Study. Prepare. Now you may think, "Ah, I don't know, I'm so lame. I'm, I'm just, I know I'm not gifted. Believe in Jesus. Be trained in the knowledge of the Word. Practice faith. And you will see a lameness healed. And it may be your own lameness. Or mine. But as we walk in the Spirit, as we learn to accept and believe and to move in and to flow in spiritual things, we will become more spiritual. We'll walk stronger and be lame less often. A lameness healed. Part two. A lameness revealed. This is the sad part of the story. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus. The Latin would be Jupiter. And Paul Hermes. The Latin equivalent or Roman equivalent would be Mercury. Zeus and Hermes, because Paul was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, well, hold off on the priest of Zeus. A lameness revealed. Why would the Listerines respond this way? The people of Lystra. Why do they immediately, upon seeing this supernatural miracle, say, The gods are among us! They've come down! Why this response? I'll tell you why. There was a legend at Lystra. An interesting story that the people held as true. Once upon a time, Zeus and Hermes came down to Lystra. Actually came to the city disguised as humans, or so the myth goes. They walked into the town disguised as men and were completely ignored. Nobody offered them a place to sit. Nobody offered them a meal. Nobody offered them a drink. They were snubbed by this town. 
And as they came to the end of town and were about to leave, frustrated and angry with the people, a little old couple living there in somewhat of a ramshackle hut came out to them. The, the husband's name was Philemon, not the Philemon of Scripture. This is a myth, remember. Philemon. His wife's name was Bossus. We'll just call him Phil and Bossy. <laughs> and they welcomed these two weary travelers in. And such that they had, they provided for them. They gave them some wheat that, that Bossy quickly mixed up and, and baked some bread with what wheat they had left. And they, they took the, the last of the skin of wine that they had and, and poured it into bowls for their visitors to drink. Until Bossy started to notice the wine's not running out. And there's more than enough bread here. Realizing something amazing was going on, she went out back and killed the one goose they had, a scrawny little thing, but at least it would be some meat. And she cooked it up and she presented it to these and they realized suddenly that they were in the presence of the gods. So the myth goes. And Zeus and Hermes reveal themselves to Phil and Bossy. And they tell them, because you have treated us well and have not ignored and snubbed us, we're going to save your lives and give you honor. As for the city, it's done. They flooded the city and it was decimated. Now in Lystra's history, Lystra there in a, in a valley area, it flooded. So in the past, it had been destroyed by flood. And this was the story that had been drummed up that went along with the flood idea that Zeus and Hermes flooded the valley. But before doing so, they take Phil and Bossy up onto the hill. And there, the trees and the rocks all begin to form together. And next thing you know, a temple! (laughs) And Zeus and Hermes say, because of your goodness to us, we will now make you two the guardians of the temple of Zeus here above what was once Lystra. And for the rest of their lives, Phil and and Bossy got to be guardians of the temple. Woohoo! And as they were dying, growing very old, they looked at each other and they both realized they had come to the end of their days and suddenly something started to happen. As the tale goes, their fingers got leafy and their arms started to harden and bark covered over their mouths even as they said their fond farewells and Philemon was turned into a linden tree and bossy into an oak so that they could stand perpetually if not botanically in front of the temple and that's the story and it really makes you wonder if Philemon didn't regret all those times he wished he had a green thumb or the times he said hey let's make like a tree and leaf <laughs> Shaking your hands. You know, if you believe this myth, you're barking up the wrong tree. I mean, how could people believe, the people of Lystra believe such nonsense? I'm stumped. <laughs> uh, all right, enough of that. Oh, by the way, do you know why Zeus and, and Hermes did this? Well, they just wanted someone to root for them. All right, here's... Here's the lameness revealed. The moment the man left up, the people started singing, the gods are back in town. They believed the old myth, the old fable. And now that these two men of work, these workers of miracles, they must be Zeus, they must be Hermes, and we don't want to snub them this time. We want to make sure we take care of them. And so here comes the priest of Zeus, verse 13, whose temple was just outside the city, bringing oxen and garlands to the gates, and he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. How lame. How sad. How human. How human. To want to appease the gods lest they grow angry with us for snubbing them. What do you mean? Hey, people still do it. In this culture, in this day. People who have no faith in God whatsoever but engage in charitable functions because they got to do something. Got to give back. Give back to who? Why? I'll tell you what, if you're not going to follow Jesus, man, sin big. Be a hedonist. You might as well. Who, who do you think you're giving back to? Benefit concerts. Philanthropic endeavors to give back. Hey, I am all for giving back. But you think you're giving back to the gods? You're trying to develop, as John Lennon once sang, instant karma? What's it all about? 
And the Apostle Paul, in learning and understanding Greek culture, pagan culture, and how they respond to the supernatural, to the spiritual, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. Understand what Paul is saying here. He says there are many theoi, gods, plural, but only one God, theos, singular. Wait, wait, Paul says there are gods? Yeah, listen, he's addressing the pantheon. He's addressing the pagan belief that there are all kinds of gods. And you can name them all right and left as much as you want to. But further on in his letter to Corinth, Paul unveils who these gods truly are. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. He says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No! But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. In other words, the Greek pantheon was nothing less than demonic. The Greek gods were simply demons in disguise. The fables, the myths, the stories generated by the demonic realm to dissuade people from any kind of faith in the one true God. I mean, think about the plan of Satan. There's one true God, but if we throw out a bunch of gods all over the place, it will confuse them. And so the demons went to work. People cannot, listen, cannot appease the gods with good deeds. Because the gods, little g, are demons. And the demons don't care about good deeds. They don't care about righteousness. In fact, all they care about is serving the one who steals and kills and destroys. John 10.10 There's only one God who Paul says to Titus is our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd. They are upset. Paul ripping apart his members-only jacket. I'm convinced that's what he wore. It's from my era. Those were so cool. You remember those? Had like little buttons and the little strap. No one ever strapped, closed the jacket, but it had members only. I remember my first one, it was dark brown, members only jacket, and I'm like, I am in. <laughs> How do you know you're in, Rick? Members only. I'm a member. What are you a member of, Rick? The jacket club. <laughs> anyway, they tore their robes. Why do they do that? They're upset. They are crying out, verse 15, and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, so that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet He did not leave Himself without witness. Did you hear what they're saying here? They're saying, Zeus is not your Creator. Look around. Hermes didn't do this. Hermes didn't bring you the message of the gospel. He doesn't bear good news. And think about this. What was it that the people said back in verse 11 when they saw the lame man healed? The gods have become like men and have come down to us. Right idea. Wrong guys. You see, God did come down. God did become a man. God did come down to us. 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. God was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. God came down. So the concept is right, but it's confused. It's watered down. The gods plural. Many different gods, many possible systems of belief, many ideas, many religions. It's all watered down. God says, no, there's one God. 
And his name is Yeshua. One God-man who came down. But you're missing him. Paul and, Paul and Barnabas might say, you're missing him because you're thick as trees. You guys are like Philemon and Bossus. Your heads are like wood. Now, they might not have said those things. But Paul did call their pantheon of gods vain things. The phrase vain things, one word, metios. Metios in the Greek, which means useless, meaningless. Your gods, your temple to Zeus up on the hill, meaningless, vain things. What are the vain things you worship in your life? What are the vain things in your world that you put stock in, that you believe in, that you trust in, that you venerate? Who are the idols that you look up to in this world? You see, this word for vain things also is applied in the New Testament to idolatry, to idol worship. And I remind you what Solomon said in Proverbs 14.7, Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. You want knowledge? You want the truth? Well, wisdom and discernment and understanding and clarity in this world? Listen to the God who came down among men, Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus. Worship of Jesus is not a vain thing. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, We know that when the Son of God has come and has given us, or we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then Paul adds, or, or John adds a little verse here at the end of this letter. He says, Little children, guard yourself from idols. Why the add on, John? Because idols are anything or anyone that takes our eyes off Jesus. Anything in your life that removes faith in Jesus and puts it in something else, anything else, it could be your work. It could be your workout. It could be your diet. It could be your bank account. Husbands, it could be a wife. Wives, it could be a husband that you put all your trust in. Hey, listen, for a marriage to be strong, the trust has got to go to Jesus first. And then you love your spouse because of Jesus. You serve your spouse because you serve Him. You have not a a, a vain thing. Directors call marriage a vain thing. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Marriage without Jesus is a vain thing. Why? Because it's just going to end in death. Best you can do is live out 50, 60 years with the same person, but with no Jesus there. That's it. But a marriage where Jesus is at the center, dang, that's a relationship that's eternal. That's a beautiful thing. What do you put your faith in? You've got spirit, you've got soul, you've got flesh. And again, the soul is the battleground. And if the soul is turning to the flesh, it is a vain thing. If the soul is turning to the Spirit of the living God, that's where our hope lies. Verse 16. In the generations gone by, Paul says, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways, free will. Verse 17. And yet He did not leave Himself without a witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And listen, even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Why? What's not working here? You see, that's, that's what you do if you're in ministry. You try a program. It does, if it doesn't work, you pull back and you reevaluate. So Paul, Barnabas, let's evaluate. Why is it so hard to restrain the people? What's wrong here? Listen, religion runs deep. Even pagan religion, uh, a false faith, myth, it runs deep. Or, maybe they were hard-pressed to restrain the people because the distinction between Zeus and Yahweh was not made clear enough. 
What do you mean? Paul's got something to learn. And, and please understand, I don't think that I know more than Paul. But we're watching Paul as we watch Peter as a man gifted by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, but still a man who is on a learning curve. This is the first missionary journey. This is the first time now that he's taking the Gospel straight to Gentiles. And man, this is a different vibe here, gang. This is a different reaction, different response. And what Paul needs to learn and will learn and will proclaim is you can't dance around the cross. Got to be straight up. And when you read this sermon, he dances around the cross. Now, I'm convinced because he was preaching Jesus, because he was preaching the gospel, that he had shared the cross at some point. But in response to them wanting to make him a god, to them wanting to offer up sacrifices, Paul is talking about the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them and and permitted nations to do this, that, and the other and and did not leave himself without a witness. What witness? Good things and and rains from heaven and fruitful seasons so that you could fill your bellies. Where's the cross in that? Why are you getting all after Paul? On his second missionary journey, he's going to use the same idea. He's going to utilize Greek philosophy in Athens. Acts 17, we'll get to it. And he's going to get little response. And then, then he goes to Corinth. And at Corinth, he writes the following, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. We might add, as I did in Lystra and in Athens. No, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the difference between Zeus and Yahweh. Other than the fact that Zeus is not real. The difference between the pantheon of gods and what they might do for mankind and what Jesus Christ did for mankind is summed up in the cross. And no other god had done that. Nor could any other demon achieve that. Now hold that thought just for a minute. I have one more thing to tell you, but i got to come back to that thought. So hold it. Are you holding it? Verse 15. Look at verse 15 one more time. Paul quotes a verse here. He says, We preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to, quote, a living God who, here's the quote, made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And Paul starts to get into it, but that's all he gives them. Now this is interesting to me. Again, he's taking the gospel to Gentiles. Back in Acts 13, when he preaches to Jews, you know what he does? Quotes a ton of Hebrew scriptures. Look at the difference between the two sermons. Acts 13, scripture, 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 scripture. Acts Acts 14, 1. And it's a vague reference to the overall creator. Here in pagan country... He just quotes the one verse. I want to read you the context of the one verse. And you can join me if you want to. It's in Psalm 146. And let's do this quickly. Psalm 146. Because you don't have the verses to even know how far into the teaching I am. (laughs) Psalm 146, verse 1. I'll start reading. You catch up. Psalm 146, 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 146, verse 2. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Verse 5. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is is the Lord his God, who, verse 6, made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. There's Paul's quote. Who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord raises up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, the Lord protects the strangers, He supports the fatherless and the widow, but He thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord, and what this pagan culture needed more than anything else, same thing this pagan culture needs more than anything else, and that That is Jesus Christ. 
Psalm 146 is a declaration of none other than Jesus. And Paul only gives one slight verse out of it. But if you look at the whole thing, in verse 6, He created all things. Well, Jesus did, Colossians 1.16 tells us. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And He keeps faith forever. Verse 6 mentions here in Psalm 146. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ, who by the way, Hebrews 13.8 tells us, is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is faithful. He keeps faith. He executes justice. He sets the prisoner free, verse 7 tells us. Well, that's Jesus, who quoted Isaiah 61 saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me, uh, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That's what Jesus does. Verse 7 says He gives food to the hungry. Jesus said in John 6.41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And then He fed the multitude. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6. Jesus fed the hungry. And He opens up the eyes of the blind. Well, did Jesus do that? Of course He did. Isaiah 35.5 told us Messiah would. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then Jesus, in His own words, testifying of His ministry for the disciples of John the Baptist... Says in Matthew 11:5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Well, that's Jesus. He opens the eyes of the blind. He supports the fatherless and the widow. Oh, like the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7, who Jesus raises her son from the dead and gives the son back to his mother. Or like his own mother, who we believe at the time of the crucifixion was also a widow. And he looks at John and says, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He takes care of the widow. He thwarts the way of the wicked, verse 9 tells us. Well, that's what the cross did. The ultimate thwart. Hebrews 2.14 Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. Translation, the God came down. That through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And then finally, Psalm 146, verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Well, that's the promise of Messiah. The whole psalm is about Jesus. Paul has the psalm in his hands, and here, for whatever reason, he only gives... A slight portion of it. Anything other than Jesus. It's just lame. It's just lame. Now now there's more to this story in chapter 14. What takes place? We'll come back to it Wednesday night. But I'm going to ask you a final question this morning. In this world of gods and men. Listen. Do you see why the spiritual gifts are so important? The spiritual gifts. Paul got schooled at Athens. And then he came to Corinth. Came to Corinth. Remember I told you to hold that thought? Okay, now you can let it go. We're back. He came to Corinth and he said, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But listen to what he said next. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In other words, I was lame. Anyone relate to that? He says, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. In other words, I was no Hermes. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The gifts of the Spirit are not marks of self-righteousness. They are given so that we could trust, or learn not to trust in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. But in Jesus Christ, the God who came down, 
who saves us. The purpose of the gifts. Maybe you were raised in a fellowship. I was raised in a church that denied the spiritual gifts. That said, that's for the first century. That was for the apostles primarily. It kind of died out after them. It's not, it's not for us. And maybe you hear the spiritual gifts and it makes you a little uncomfortable because you think, well, okay, so what? Is the bridge going all Pentecostal on us? No, we're just trying to go Jesus. But the truth is, we have had a misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts over the years, and that is that they are for man. They're not. They're, they're for the glory of Jesus. They're to point people to God. They're to be used to His glory. And the glory of this is that no magnet to the brain can strip the Holy Spirit from you. Oh, it might alter the soul a bit, but man, if you are walking in the Spirit... In the flow of the Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit. This is what He does through His people to the glory of Christ. And I sat in church week in and week out my entire upbringing and I went, why don't we see... And I didn't say miracles. I didn't say, why don't we see resurrections? I didn't say, why don't we see healings? I said as a kid growing up, why don't we see more people coming to the Lord? It's because we're putting our trust in mortal man and not in the Spirit of God. Bridge Fellowship. He has called us to faith in Him. Not faith in a growing staff. Not faith in in a group of shepherds. Not faith in a worship team. Faith in a teaching pastor. Faith in any number of programs we have going on. He has called us to faith in Jesus. Who is spirit as well as flesh. And has offered to gift us, to enable us to do what we cannot do. We like Paul are in weakness and fear and much trembling on our own. The spiritual gifts are given that we might function for Him. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So we have a choice. We can have a lameness healed, or we can just be a lameness revealed. It's our call. Father, I pray to You this morning. I ask You, Lord, to pour into our hearts more faith. Father, I believe that since You said that You have given these gifts to the church, and we are the church, that is Your every intention to gift Your people. Would You train us, Lord? Would You train us up and prepare us to utilize the gifts in a way that would honor you glorify Jesus speak truth because father in this pagan world there are far too many gods help us Lord to proclaim Christ and him crucified the cross that makes all the difference and use us to your glory father I pray in Jesus name amen